When I went to Madison, uh, I was not good enough to be a Division I athlete, but I thought, oh, maybe I'm good enough to be a Division I mascot. So I tried out to be Bucky Badger, was selected my freshman year to be one of the Buckies. And in 1999, University of Wisconsin was playing Michigan State, and I decided it would be fun to steal the Michigan State cheerleader flag. So I jumped over the fence, stole the cheerleader flag, and was running it back. And a 200-pound male cheerleader, a former All-State wrestler, took exception and uh, just flattened me. Fox Sports, a couple years later, came out with a, a ranking of the 10 worst sports beatdowns of all time. Number six was Bucky Badger getting pummeled by a cheerleader. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners and entrepreneurs discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Shapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. Now that fall sports are underway, sports fans around the country are excited to see their favorite mascots back on the field again. But have you ever wondered where these fuzzy characters come from? Well, the vast majority of them are crafted by skilled artists at Olympus Group, a company based in Milwaukee which, for the past 130 years, has been the go-to manufacturer of American flags, printed media, and, that's right, mascots. My guest today is Brian Adam, president and owner of Olympus Group. Brian's father bought Olympus Group in 1991, and after turning the company around, sold it to Brian in 2005, and since then the business has continued to grow. My conversation with Brian today is full of business advice on leadership, innovation, and culture, but also plenty of wealth planning insights as we hear how Brian's family went from owning a single business to building a family enterprise, as we like to call it. More on that later, but first to kick things off, let's learn how Brian got started with Olympus Group. Olympus is a 130-year-old manufacturer of flags, pennants, banners, graphics. Got started by producing flags and pennants for local sports teams. And the business was owned by one family for 99 years. Fast forward to 1991. The lion's share of what they produced at the time was U.S. flags. And in 1991, that was Operation Desert Storm. Whenever there's a war, crisis, people get very patriotic and buy lots of U.S. flags. Flag sales don't go up just 25%. They go up, I think, 5 to 6x. So in 1991, the company had uh, orders for lots and lots of flags. The company acquired a couple million dollars worth of raw materials, grease goods, started producing flags. And Operation Desert Storm uh, ended fairly quickly. It was over in about 60 to 90 days. And all of the retailers and mass merchants canceled the orders. So it was probably going to take them three to four years to sell it, and they were on the brink of bankruptcy. So my, uh, my father ended up buying the business out of bankruptcy in 1991. He bought it as a turnaround, turned it around, ran it for about nine years till 2000. It was still primarily a U.S. flag company. I grew up around that time. So I grew up in the business, packaging flags in the warehouse during the summers, working in production to support the team and make a couple extra bucks when I was in high school and in college. But I had no intention of joining the business. I graduated college and went down to Chicago. I met my wife down there. We were consultants. And then in 2005, uh, my father approached me and said, hey, do you have any interest in, in, in buying this business from us? Um, and that, you know, my wife and I talked about it and decided in 2005 that, hey, this, this would be kind of interesting. Let's buy this flag company. And, and we, we went through the process of acquiring the business from, uh, from my father. And I understand at the time you didn't have a ton of cash to, you know, buy the company outright. And so can you talk to us a little bit about maybe how that deal was structured with your dad? So I think I had $45,000 of cash in the bank. 
And I owned a condo that had a huge mortgage on it with my brother, but had some equity built up into it. So when we decided as a family that my father was going to sell and that I was going to buy the business, I took all the cash I had and gave it to my father, gave the condo and the equity I had in it to my brother. My father had told my brother, hey, at some point I'm going to try to make this equitable, but understand it's never going to be equitable. And then we agreed via, I mean, I would say handshake, but I don't even think we shook hands. It was just more uh, agreement that I would pay an elevated rent rate for the foreseeable future, you know, the next 10 to 12 years, which would generate a couple hundred thousand dollars to cover the cost of the acquisition into a, a family fund, into an LLC that my father had created. And the family fund was 52% owned by my mother and father and 24% owned by my brother and I. And what it really allowed us to do was diversify our investments, where before it would have been all Olympus and not much else. And it really allowed my father and brother then to work together on identifying other opportunities, investing in stuff from real estate, uh, a whole uh, slew of interesting companies, you know, marijuana companies, a whiskey company, a distillery, a mattress company. And uh, eventually what my father did to try to make it more equitable was made my brother the majority owner of that family fund. So he now has 52% of it as a way to try to even out the equity between us. There's no way to truly value or quantify exactly what the value of the business was or what the fund is, but it's at least ended in a place where my brother and I are still best friends. We get along as a family. We still vacation as a family. We still do once a year, we do a family meeting where we typically go somewhere and we go over the financials and I give an update on Olympus. They share an update on the investments we're making. And uh, we've now used that LLC to help fund our my children and my brother's children's college funds. So they help fund some 529 plans to, uh, every single year to help ensure that the kids have uh, college paid for. It's interesting because the, the deal where you bought the business was almost part of this broader wealth plan for the family, it sounds like. Can you maybe share a little bit more about that and how that was structured, but also today how that's working? So you've got, you're running the business now and owning the business. And then I think your father and your brother are helping to manage the family's wealth, but in a different capacity. But then the, the three of you are sort of working together on that. Our family was always close. Like my brother and I were best friends growing up. We went to Madison together. We were both accounting majors up there. We lived together in Chicago. So our family was always very, very tight knit. And my father's desire, I think, was to just always keep the family close. But uh, he was a serial entrepreneur who liked investing in different businesses. He just really enjoyed it. My brother's cut from the exact same cloth, very analytical. And then I'm, I'm the extrovert. I'm the one that likes going out, meeting people, and networking. So I think my father's desire was to try to just keep the family close. Let's do some investments together so we can do some, probably as much of it had to do with you know, wealth planning and, and, and generating some, some wealth for the family. But more of it just had to do with us hanging out as a family, you know, taking a trip together and sharing, you know, the, the financials, reviewing the investments, talking about what we're working on, um, and ensuring that just the, the, the family stayed involved. Brian is building what we like to call a family enterprise, which often begins with ownership of a single private business and then uses the cash flows of that business to expand the family's investments into other ventures, such as startup companies and real estate. 
But a key component of building a family enterprise is bringing in outside perspectives. And for some families, this takes the shape of an advisory board. I asked Brian about how his family's advisory board came to be. When I got involved in Olympus, my father had an advisory board. My father's advisory board was two close friends, an attorney and a merchant banker. And it was really his, hey, if I get hit by a bus policy, these two individuals can help sell the business and support my mom. When I bought the business, I was 27 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. I was in way over my skis. I didn't know manufacturing. I didn't know how to run a business. So I wanted an advisory board for advice and help me make intelligent business decisions. And probably more importantly, you know, I'm going to screw up along the way, but make sure I don't, <laughs> make sure I don't implode the thing and potentially expose the entire business. So I, I had my father and brother on our advisory board, and then I added uh, four additional members to an advisory board that meets you know, two to three times a year that I will also reach out to for advice as we have big decisions, big opportunities. It's allowed me to engage some really smart people, get them involved in the business, and help make sure we're kind of headed in the right direction. My father and brother's involvement is probably even more extensive than the rest of the advisory board. Since they have a lot of financial acumen, they've done a lot of M&A, you know, we just acquired a business in Las Vegas about a year ago. It was a big acquisition for us. And they did almost all the due diligence. They helped us develop the terms. Um, they helped me structure the deal and structure the earn out. And were pretty instrumental in helping me uh, make this deal happen. So in addition to your father and your brother and the advisory board, you said there were a couple of other members. Are these, I'm assuming these aren't people who are working in your business. They're maybe outside advisors like a CPA, investment banker. Or can you give us a little intel on kind of the types of people on the board? It's a family business. And I know uh, most, as is true with most family business, it becomes fairly incestuous. So the, uh, the group of advisors would be my neighbor, who's one of my best friends. He, he's a managing director at a large PE firm. Our attorney is on the advisory board, who happened to be my college roommate for three years. A executive at Kraft, who's a kind of a marketing guru, who's also one of my best friends. And then the outsiders, we have a, someone who's become good friends, but it's kind of an ops guru that's uh, semi-retired. So it's a, a collection of friends and family, but they all have one thing in common, and that's that they're all much more intelligent than I am. It helps to have some perspective from outside the industry and perspective from larger organizations. I've now been at Olympus for almost 18 years, so I am very myopic in my view. I, I know our industry fairly well, but uh, it's really nice to find out what others are doing outside of our specific space. Absolutely. Um, so I want to turn maybe back to the business for a minute. So the name of our podcast is The Road to Why. And we named it that because when we have conversations with business owners, almost always the reason for their hard work in growing their business and growing their wealth is not monetary. There's some bigger purpose or set of values that's really driving them to get up in the morning and work hard. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your why for working hard and building Olympus Group over the years. So mine would start with my father's story. And my father was born in East Germany in 1953, his family, so my grandparents, decided they hated communism. They wanted out. They escaped through the Berlin Wall when my father was three years old. They left their families behind, got airlifted out of West Berlin, and then my father lived in a refugee camp with his family for about two and a half years in Western Germany before coming over to the United States on a boat with nothing but the clothes on their back and the debt they had from their boat ride. He was able, in my mind, to live 
you know, kind of like the classic American dream. He got a scholarship to college, entrepreneurial, worked and was able to create a much better future for you know, my generation and my kids that had my family stayed in Eastern Germany. So my why would be, we have 250 employees that work at Olympus. A large proportion of them are immigrants. We have a lot of seamstresses that work for us. So for me, probably the thing I enjoy the most about my job and what, what I can do at Olympus is the impact I can have on our team members' lives. We do a lot of things here to try to engage, especially individuals who you know, don't speak English. We translate everything into Spanish and Hmong, all of our hand letter, uh, handbooks, newsletters, updates, company presentations, strategic plans to make them feel engaged. And probably the most, for, for me, the most rewarding thing we do is we share our profits with our employees. So I give 20% of our pre-tax profit back to our employees in a very egalitarian way. It's very flat. Everyone gets the exact same dollar amount. You know, my CFO gets the exact same amount as a warehouse employee, which who gets the same amount as a seamstress. What I like about it is it creates kind of a common goal and common purpose. You know, the more successful we are, if we you know, crush it and have a great year, the more money that goes directly into our employees' pockets. And uh, for you know, seamstresses, the, the cool part would be, I think, seven of the last eight years, we've been able to pay at least $1,000 out in bonuses at the end of the year. And that's, you know, for someone making 15 to $20 an hour, that's a, a fairly impactful amount. But at least for me, more importantly, it also creates this kind of common goal, common purpose, uh, and a shared, shared direction that we're trying to head as an organization. I really like reading about how when you talk about returning profits to employees, it actually, from what I understand, how you built your business plan. So instead of starting at the top line, I want to grow sales by X dollar amount, you started with the end goal and almost, you could describe this a lot better than I can, but you kind of worked your way up the financial statement, if you will. Can you talk about that a little bit? So to me, if I were to tell our employees, we want to hit $100 million in sales, that doesn't mean anything to them. So I didn't want to start with that as our goal. I didn't want to start with a goal of we want to hit a certain percent market share. You know, I wanted something that resonated with every single one of our employees. And to me, the profit sharing plan is something that everybody partakes in. So we set our goal, basically said, hey, we want to hit a million dollars in profit sharing. So then we you know, figured out, okay, if we want to hit a million dollars in profit sharing, well, we pay out 20% of our profits, so that number's easy. I need to get to $5 million in profit. And then we came out with our sales target. And we said, all right, well, what, what does that mean from a, a sales goal? What do we need to hit? And in our industry, printing's not the, uh, <laughs> we don't have the highest margins. It's a, it's a very mature market with thinner margins. So we thought we, we, we could get to, you know, if we get to 50 million in sales, we could do 55 in one. Get to 50 million in sales, not because, and I wouldn't tell our employees, not because we care about that sales total, but that would allow us to get to, if we're well run, that allows us to get to $5 million in profit. Not because I care about that number either, but if we hit $5 million in profit, that allows me to give a million dollars back to you. And that's kind of how we created the goal. We've since tweaked it because with, uh, with wage inflation, cost pressures, material price increases, I don't know if 55 and one's attainable in our space anymore. So we, we've actually changed it this year and set our sales target at 60 million and said, all right, maybe we actually need to get to 60 million. But again, not because we care about that number. We just we think that's what we need to achieve to get to that $1 million profit sharing. And what I like about it is it's something that resonates with every single employee inside the entire organization. So we can build our plans around what we're trying to accomplish you know, for the production team, for the sales team, even for our HR team around that mission of hitting this $1 million in pre-tax profit sharing. Yeah, I think it's so brilliant because to your point, there's only a handful of people that care about sales going up by 5%. But if you start with a bottom line goal, there's nobody in the company that's that's not going to understand or embrace that. Or it's not going to resonate with them, you know? 
On the topic of creating engagement, which clearly that does among your employees, I know you wrote a book actually, and I love the name of it. It's Rules of Engagement, A Guide to Better Communication and Better Relationships with Everyone Who is Important to Your Business. And I think that idea of better engagement and communication is so critical in the business world, but certainly among families too. And obviously we work with a lot of families with multi-generational wealth, with different family members participating in the business. So I was hoping you could share, you know, to summarize the book, but maybe share a little bit about some of those principles and in, in how that might apply not only to business, but just communication among family in general. From a work perspective, I would tell our employees, there is nothing we have that our competitors don't have. They have the exact same printing equipment, they have the exact same sewing machines, the exact same ERP systems, computer systems. The only thing we have that our competitors do not have is our people. And in my mind, if our employees care a little bit more about what they do every single day, that's how we win. I believe you win with employee engagement and culture. I spoke a couple times at some industry conferences on employee engagement. It was kind of a neat way to share our story. I loved it. And then a friend, uh, another guy who spoke at the conference with me, asked me if we wanted to write a book together. First, I'm an awful writer, but to me, the exciting part was it allowed me to tell the story, you know, because Olympus isn't my story. It's the story of our employees. It's the stories of, you know, the, the team members we have here and what they've been able to accomplish. It allowed me to share what they were able to do and articulate it. In terms of engagement, from a family perspective, my father's, you know, I, I still remember the example when I was a little kid and he gave me the you know, one toothpick and said, here, break it. And you snapped it. And then he gave you the, I don't know, like eight toothpicks. And he's like, now try to snap them. And you couldn't snap them. And he's like, see, like, that's like a family. When you have a family and you support each other and you're together, you, you're a lot stronger. So what we've tried to do as a family is spend a lot of time ensuring that we're completely open and transparent with everything. So I think my father, from a very early age, even before I was in the business, would share all sorts of stuff about personal financials. And I think his goal was to just, hey, here's the situation. I don't want to blindside or have anyone be surprised and have anyone get upset. You're generation two of the business owning family. I want to talk a little bit about G3. And I know I understand you have an 11-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. They're obviously still pretty young, but as they grow older, can you share with us a little bit about how maybe the values that are important to you, you plan to or are instilling those in them as they go down the journey of life? So I don't know if I'm doing a great job of ensuring the values are instilled in our children in terms of, hey, here's what it takes to run a business. What we're focused on, especially with our kids, my kids' ages at 11 and 7, is I, I just want to be present and be around them. I want to raise good kids that have an appreciation for, for others, an appreciation for what we have in life. Uh, we took the family last summer with my father and my brother's family to, to Eastern Germany and got to see the house my father was born in and got to meet the family over in Eastern Germany and exposed them at least to our heritage and where we came from looks a lot different now than it did probably back in the 1950s when they didn't have electricity. And, but uh, I think it still gave an appreciation for what we were going through. So in terms of keeping the kids grounded, I, I, I don't know if I have I probably a bunch of your listeners and you, know, you guys may have some great advice for me on how to keep them grounded. We just make sure we try to keep some perspective and ensure that we're raising good human beings at this point. And one of the probably greatest pieces of advice that a friend gave me, he had two twins that are now in their 20s and doing quite well. But he's like, Brian, every year I would do an alone trip away with one kid. 
like sometimes it'd be a night away, you know, sometimes it would just be go to a local hotel, but I'd let them kind of pick the trip and we would go away just me and one child every single year. So I started, in, I started that when my son was four. And, you know, sometimes it'd be you know, little things where we'd go down to the local, I took my daughter to the local water park. Uh, I took my son last weekend out to, to Denver and we went to a, a basketball game and then went and ski, skied for one day and then came back. But uh, to me, that was a nice way to make sure I'm still, despite the work schedule and the travel schedule, main, you know, building those relationships and carving out time for the kids. Olympus Group makes all sorts of printed products and American flags, but they're probably most well-known for producing something that sports fans the world over are familiar with, mascots. I asked Brian how he got into the mascots business and how exactly do you make a mascot? We started in mascots in the 1950s and Olympus pre-me was doing apparel for McDonald's. So we were screen printing hats, embroidering aprons for McDonald's and they asked us to make a clown suit. So we made the first Ronald McDonald costume ever. And then McDonald's asked us to make a, a purple gumball, a birdie, a hamburglar, and that's how we got into mascots, was through McDonald's. The apparel industry changed. A lot of the apparel, where a significant portion of the cost is sewing labor, was produced overseas. Uh, mascots are they're big, so they're tough to ship. They're unique, they're often one-offs. So we, while we stopped producing apparel, maybe in the 70s, we kept producing mascots and kind of grew this nice little niche where we now are the largest producer of mascot costumes in the U.S. You asked how we make a mascot. The way you make a mascot today is the exact same way you made a mascot in the 1960s, which is by hand. If we were to walk into our production shop here in Milwaukee today, you would see some very creative and talented artists with hot glue guns, with scissors, with airbrushes, blow dryers, and with all sorts of different just handheld supplies, gluing eyes and ears and fur and foam on Geico geckos, Bucky Badgers, you know, still have some grimaces back there today, and all sorts of other characters for professional and collegiate sports teams and, and brand icons. It's got to be a fun factory tour, you know. Halloween here is a blast. The costume party is out of this world. And yes, we'll bring you know, a big print customer through for a tour that, that buys a lot of banners from us. And I, they, they, they probably spend half their time on the mascot side walking through and trying on heads and gloves and having a little fun with the characters. Well, I understand that you do have some personal experience as a mascot. I think back in the 1990s, I don't know if you want to share that story, including you may be a little internet famous for something that occurred. <laughs> My father bought this business in 1991. So I actually worked in the mascot department a couple of summers, gluing fans inside of heads and doing anything that required no artistic ability. So I always liked mascots. When I went to Madison, uh, I always loved sports. I'm an extrovert. I loved people. I liked being the center of attention. Uh, I was not good enough to be a Division One athlete, but maybe I thought, hey, maybe I'm good enough to be a Division One mascot. So I tried out to be Bucky Badger at University of Wisconsin was selected my freshman year to be one of the Buckies. There's uh, six of them that take turns performing. And in 1999 was my, was my 15 minutes of fame. University of Wisconsin was playing Michigan State at Camp Randall, and they were up by a whole bunch. I decided it would be fun to steal the Michigan State cheerleader flag. So I jumped over the fence, stole the cheerleader flag, kind of ran it in our end zone, threw it on the ground, kind of stomped on it, playing around a little bit, and was running it back across the end zone to 
put down so they could uh, return the flag to Michigan State. And a 200-pound male cheerleader, a former All-State wrestler, took exception and uh, ran down the side of the field. And I didn't really see him. You don't have great vision as a mascot, but just flattened me. Like form tackle, a couple punches were thrown. Um, I got beat down by a Michigan State cheerleader. Um, so that would be my that would be my claim to fame. I think Fox Sports a couple years later came out with a, a ranking of the ten worst sports beatdowns of all time. Uh, number one was Tyson Spinks, and number six was Bucky Badger getting pummeled by a cheerleader. So I I can share a uh, top ten list for uh, getting pummeled by Fox Sports. Have, have you have your kids seen that video? What what do they think about it if they have? Uh, they think it's pretty funny. I'm good with people laughing at my expense, so they they get they get a, they get a kick out of it. Although Brian may not be the best sports mascot, he certainly knows how to run a company. So I asked Brian if he had any advice for young entrepreneurs on what it takes to build and sustain a successful business. So my father's the one who took it out of bankruptcy and he turned it around. I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I have the financial acumen to be able to take a business, make some really hard decisions, and take a business that's you know on the brink of bankruptcy and at least turn it around where it's generating a profit. What I did was I took a business that had a, a solid foundation and was able to scale and grow it. So we were able to grow the business from 10 million in sales to you know last year we did just north of 40 million in sales. The advice I'd have for entrepreneurs is the way we did it was by building connections and relationships with our team members. So one of the first things I did that had the most impact at Olympus was I sat down and did a one-on-one with every single employee. And I asked them what they like, what they don't like, what we should do different, what we could do better, what questions they had, and spent a lot of time. I asked them what they do if they won the lottery. I mean, that, that's a great question to ask your employees. Give someone gives you insight into what their hopes and dreams are. You know, a little example would be we had an employee on our mascot team who told me if she won the lottery, she'd buy one of those fancy aluminum garbage cans that has a little sensor on it. And I'm like, what? She goes, that's how you know you made it. Like when you don't just have like the cheap plastic ones, but you have those nice aluminum ones. So she once crushed it one weekend, came in, like put in 14 hours to get an order out the door. So what did I do? I went online and I bought an aluminum can that had, it was one of those automatic ones with the sensors for like $95, put it on her desk with a little note that said, hey, thanks for crushing it this weekend. Appreciate what you did. And it allowed me to build that kind of relationship with the employees. So I guess my advice would be if you can spend some time building a relationship with your employees and your team members and find out what their hopes and dreams are and what they would change and show them you care and truly do care, they're going to work a little harder and they're going to they're care about the company and care about their job and they'll do a better job than your competitors. That's great. No, that's really cool. And it's amazing the connectivity you've built with your team and, and how that's just sort of benefited the company overall. So I appreciate that. I think culture is so important to family businesses. And I know that I think it was a couple of years ago, 2017, Glassdoor rated you as one of the top 25 CEOs to work for in the country for small businesses. So I would love if you could just share maybe a couple of stories or pieces of advice on how you cultivate that type of culture in, in your business. To me, from, from a cultural perspective, you know, there, there's a couple of key things. One is communication. I mean, I don't think any individual I've ever met at any organization says, you want to know what? I just wish my company would stop sharing such useful updates with me all the time. So we spend a lot of time trying to focus on communication. 
I share a strategic plan every single quarter. I translate it into Spanish and Hmong for employees that don't speak English. In it, we share numbers, we share profitability, we share sales goals, we let them know what we're working on. To me, it creates some alignment. And then there's more tactical updates. A friend, Riley Didion, taught me this. So every Monday morning, I send out an email to the entire company and I give them updates on what's going on. And creating that rigor to do it every single Monday morning is something that's allowed me to keep our teammates informed. During COVID, we changed our Monday morning updates to our morning updates because stuff was changing so quickly that a lot of times it would just be me emailing our entire company saying, guys, I don't know what this means, but here's what we're trying to do. To me, just that, that communication is, is so critical. The other thing we do from a communication perspective is I take the time to sit down with every single new hire and share our story. We've developed a culture deck that if you have not looked at Netflix culture deck, I created an Olympus culture deck that articulates what our culture is all about. And I, by personally communicating with them, it allows me to build a connection and share with them like, hey guys, this is what we're trying to achieve. The other th piece of communication is communications two ways. So I want to make sure our employees feel like they have a voice. I tell our employees, we won't agree on everything. You guys are going to share ideas that I disagree with. I'm going to share ideas you disagree with. And that's okay. Like that's perfectly healthy. The key is listening with an open mind to each other and then discussing and debating what the best path forward is. And if we decide to try someone else's idea or try my idea or try your idea, that's fine. But let's at least create a culture where people feel like they have a voice. So I actually pay people for their suggestions. We have a Hey Brian suggestion program where I pay out uh, $50 a month to the best suggestion that someone submits and then $500 at the end of the year for the best suggestion that's been submitted over the year. And I do that because I'm saying, hey guys, like, not only do I want to hear your feedback, I'll pay you for it. So I think those have allowed us to help create a culture where employees feel like they're heard and where they know what's going on. Brian's story is really what many of our clients hope to achieve. He and his family bought and turned around a business which continues to thrive today. Over time, his family expanded their investments beyond the business by putting in place a structure that allowed family members to participate and play to their strengths and interests. And, perhaps most importantly, the family still enjoys working together. A huge thank you to Brian for sharing his story with us today. If you enjoyed our conversation, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.